Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and we are joined today by author, illustrator, and cultural critic, Mira Jacob. Mira is the author of The Sleepwalker's Guide to Dancing and a graphic memoir called Good Talk that was the finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Today, we talk about Mira's process, when form, function, and storytelling all align, and how blurbs get made. The Stacks Book Club pick for July is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie. We'll be discussing the book on the show on Wednesday, July 28th with Mira Jacob. If you love the show and want to be a part of our community, be sure to join the Stacks Pack on Patreon. You contribute $5 a month and get to join our monthly virtual book club. You get discounts on merch and more. Plus, you get to know that your contributions make the Stacks possible. I honestly could not make this show without the generosity of the Stacks Pack. So please head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. Natalie Aiken, Kara, A. Muhammad, Colorful K. Reads, Holly Mascaro, Alicia, Sharon Ezekiel, Amber Burns, Hannah Spencer, and Carly Suta. Thank you all so much. Okay, now it's time to talk with Mira Jacob. All right, everybody. I'm so excited. I'm here today with Mira Jacob. You probably know her from her book, Good Talk, a memoir and conversation. If you are a longtime listener of the podcast, you might also, or a bookstagrammer, you might also know about the book from Lupita. We have to just shout Lupita out from the beginning because I know she's listening and I know she'll get mad because she's not here. But Mira, welcome to the Stacks. Thank you so much for having me. And also thank you, Essence of Lupita, for welcoming me in as well. (laughs) Yes. Okay. We always sort of start here, which is such a general question and everyone hates it. But can you kind of just tell me about yourself aside from the fact that you've written some books? Yeah. I mean, what can I tell you about myself? I'm, you know, I'm a mom. I live in Brooklyn. I... It took me until I was 40 to get my first book published, and I had been trying for about 25 years. So I just like to put that out there because I think sometimes people don't realize how hard it is. Um, And I, what else can I tell you? I really like to bike. Like, I like to bike a lot, a lot, a lot. (laughs) And I love the fact that my city is coming back. We're coming back, and we're coming back strong, and it feels good. And if I had to tell you, my general state of mind right now, I am kind of in the place of being a crab without a shell because this is the first time that I have been teaching students 
in person in a year and a half. And it is amazing. You're getting me in the middle of a residency and it's so good to be able to see them and connect with them that I might just start crying right now. Just like, <laughs> just as a precursor. I love this. I love this emotional openness. I need to know about going back to teaching. You've been away from it for a year and a half. Were you nervous? Were you anxious? Like, what was it like? I remember teaching my last, so I teach two MFA programs and I remember teaching my last MFA class in the city. And I understood in that moment, um, as the day was going on and it was, um, I think it was like Wednesday, the 11th. I don't know why that's in my brain. I hope that's the right day, but anyway, it is definitely that it was, it was definitely that Wednesday. And, um, and I remember understanding that things were moving fast and I under like, I had that gut feeling of like, everything is changing in ways that, and you, and you might lose a third of your class right now because you never know what happens to people when they can't have access to the internet, when they're, you know, their jobs and everything. And so right before class, I made a bunch of really ridiculous bookmarks with basically the good talk cartoon head and popsicle sticks. And I made full grown MFA students. I was like, this is the stand in me until we come back to class. And, um, and when you don't have someone else with you, you have me with you telling you to read books. So like, let's do this. Um, and they all kept their bookmarks and they, I mean, it was really sweet. Some of them took pictures of them when they were graduating and they're like, I had you with me the whole time. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And I love you. That is, <laughs> I feel like you are one of those people that is just like everyone else's cheerleader. Do people tell you that a lot? Um, people say that I'm very, yeah, I do tend to be pretty positive. I do have a sort of sweet spot, which is I really try to get behind the work of, you know, women and femmes over 40, because I think the industry is not kind to us and there's often not a lot of backing for us. So I'm, I really try to I really try to find those stories um, and also encourage as many as many people as I personally meet to be getting their story out here, even if they feel like the industry has passed them by because it's so urgent for me to hear their stories. How do you find those stories? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. So first of all, I read like a crazy person. Um, <laughs> so I do read kind of everything, everything that ever crosses my path, um, which is a lot of stuff. Um and I find those, I find them, you know, I go to readings and I'll hear somebody, I love going to readings where you have one person who's kind of well-known and somebody else who's sort of barely known. Um, and I attend a lot of things like that in the pandemic. And I just, I feel like I just generally, I'm always listening also because my students, um, I feel like I have to keep really, really engaged with what's going on and what's changing and how to teach to the moment, right? Um, because this moment is an expansion. And because it's really, um, it, to me, it feels like we have a time, unlike anything I've seen really since the 90s, um, to to kind of get in the door and widen it out again. You know, And I know how these things go. I know they swing and then they, and everything contracts. And I just feel like, no, let's get everybody that we can in while we're in this sort of opening out moment. Yeah. Let's get everybody that we can so that the next time it contracts is just too many people to contract around. Right. Can't do it. <laughs> right. I have this visual of you standing at a doorway, like ushering everyone in, being like, go, 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 <laughs> which is sort of great. That is my dream. Um, I love this. You know, I think one of the things that's, that is really hard um, when you are in this industry and 
and you know, even my experience of kind of getting into it, I I was always told that I was the first, um, or that I was one of few. And the truth is that I was not the first, and I am not one of few. I am one of few on the other side of a line, but there are many, many, many. There are many, many, many of me. And so I think when they tell you that, it puts you in a position of you don't know how to advocate for yourself. You don't think you have any ancestors. You don't think you have any power or recourse, right? Mm. But that could change. I feel like that could change with this generation. I know that sounds incredibly hopeful, but I got to put my hope somewhere. I mean, I'll have like, I'll lose my hope for other things. My skin, my skin's not so great lately, but I'll keep the <laughs> I'll keep the hope for the future of literature. <laughs> I love I love this for all of us. Thank you for keeping the hope. It's true though. I feel like when it comes to hope, it almost is like embarrassing to be hopeful um, or can feel that way. And and it's, it's like a practice to remember to be hopeful or like a practice to remember that it's not a bad thing to be hopeful. I think there is, you know, it's, it is this thing where I think, um, optimism is often conflated with naivete and Mm -hmm. that's those things are not the same Mm -mm. and I think it's really hard to be an optimist in the world and I'm probably not an optimist about many things but I think it's I think it's brave and hard to be an optimist yeah um and I think because when you're an optimist there are like a million people that are like that are ready to say you're an idiot and I could have told you this wasn't going to work when it doesn't work Right. right. It's easy to be pessimistic also. Of course. It's easy. I feel like it's almost not. I mean, it's, for me, it's my natural state. So I feel super vulnerable whenever I'm hopeful or optimistic about something. Well, nobody thinks you're dumb if you're a pessimist. Right. 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 Nobody thinks you are lacking some sort of essential experience if you're a pessimist. Whereas if you're an optimist, it's almost like, um, oh, your life must have been golden if you're willing to be an optimist. And yet I have found that usually the people that I've sort of, I've come to know who are deep core optimists are people that have had very difficult paths. Yeah. And their optimism is really hard won. Yeah. I think for the, for, I have a similar experience of the people that I know who are the most optimistic have had a difficult path. And I think some of that is that you've lived through your worst nightmare, right? Like yeah. you've experienced the thing that sucks so bad that you could never imagine. Whereas I think for a lot of pessimists, it's like, I'm so negative about X, Y, and Z because I'm scared of it. I don't know that I could get through yeah. it or whatever that, whatever that is. Um, sort of a segue into your book in a way, because your book sort of lives in this space that at the time felt like a lot of people's worst nightmare. Um, and I think it was, and it, the book, the book I'm talking about is a good talk. Your second book, I should say. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's a graphic memoir and it's sort of framed around conversations, many of which happen leading up to Trump's election. And when I think about that time, I think about how much optimism and pessimism were in the space and the unknown and people trying to decide how to behave. And and after his election, a lot of your book ends basically at his election, but after his election, so many people being like, I, I knew this was going to happen. You shouldn't have believed. And I have to be honest, I actually was one of those people. I called my brother the, the, right, the returns were coming in and I was like, I don't feel good about this. I feel very, very bad. And he was like, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And then I called him crying later being like, you told me it was going to be fine and you're my big brother and how could you do this to me? 
but it was definitely his fault. It was it's his, a thousand percent his fault. He also told me that Trump would be impeached by July 4th of 2017. And I knew that was wrong too, but you know, Tracy's brother, what's going on? <laughs> what is going on? How can you break our hearts this way? He's just really an optimist. He's just a liar is what he is. Not even an optimist, but, <laughs> but I think like the, the part of your book that is, that is connected to the optimism is that a lot of it is about conversations you have with your son, who is, I think like six at the time, five or six. Yeah. He was six to eight. Yeah. Six to eight. So how do you, I don't know. How did you come up with this whole concept of, I mean, the book, I don't even have a question because as I was reading it, I was like, I need to understand her brain and how this happened and how this was made. So that's sort of a humongous question, but no, but it's such a, it's good. It's a question with a definite answer. Okay. This is the good news. You ask <laughs> right. a question Thank that you. has a real answer. <laughs> um, and the other thing, like when we're talking about my son at that age, so six to eight is this kind of great moment um, for a kid, specifically six is it's kind of like being in charge of a benevolent alien. Mm. Like they just don't understand the world in so many ways. And then their observations, because they don't understand, their observations are kind of guileless. So when my son, you know, it really started with um, the first chapter in the book, which is his obsession with Michael Jackson. And he was like obsessed, obsessed. (laughs) Like I could show you videos and you would be like, oh, it is, it's a tiny Michael Jackson right there. (laughs) He had the glove, he had the whole, he he had, he had all the moves and he was good. Like he could do the moves. He would study the moves. The only thing that he couldn't do was the lean, you know, oh, the smooth, the yeah, yeah. smooth mm-hmm. lean. Um, so then he got skis and put them on in the living room and put on a tuxedo so he could do the <laughs> lean. I was like, this kid is dedicated. This muscle <laughs> might be my child. I feel a kinship. It was, it was a real, it was kind of an amazing moment. And, but then in that same moment, because I'm Indian and my husband is Jewish and he sort of lands between us in the color spectrum. He started asking me a lot of questions. Oh, because I forgot to mention, we got all the Michael Jackson albums for him. Mm. Because we were like, we're going to be so smart, and we're not going to hear skipped songs. We're going to give him albums, and then he'll just have to play the albums, mm-hmm. and we won't get that sort of weird like song salad that happens when small children are in charge of, are in charge of electronics. The thing that happens, though, is if you do that, and you get these albums for a kid who lands somewhere between brown and white, and you're looking at Michael Jackson over many, many years. He comes out with this question, which is in the book, which is what color is Michael Jackson? Is he brown or is he white? And which point I said, well, he, you know, he started bright. He's, he's black, which means his skin is brown. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, he kind of turned white. And he's like, he turned white. And I said, yeah. Um, and then, you know, and it was, it was not the right answer. And then of course it was also like, Am, you know, am I going to turn white? Are you going to turn white? Is daddy going to turn white? Daddy's already white. Was daddy always? It was just this horrible moment <laughs> in which I, I had kind of done this thing to his brain. And then his questions got really intense right from there. Um, he started asking me, he asked me once, um, are white people afraid of brown people? Hmm. Right? And like in the subway. It's so sweet. Um, and it was just one of those terrible things. Because what do you say? Like, what would, how would you answer that? I don't know. I this your book reminded me that I am in for so many questions that I'm not prepared for. Um, But I would probably say some white people are afraid of brown people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the thing I said was I was so caught off guard, and there were white people and brown people watching us answer this question. So I was like, I don't know how we do this. Um, But I what I said was sometimes because I didn't want to lie to him, and he said, Well, how do you? 
how do you know which ones are afraid of you? And I said, well, you don't always. Mm. And then that night when I was putting him to bed, he said, is daddy afraid of us? <laughs> but again, just like that, just like, right. what about that idea? And I was like, right. ah, die, I'm going to die. Um, and immediately I was, you know, like, no, no, of course not. No, you should ask. No, of course not. And then I went to the bathroom and I just sat there and was shaking because I, I knew he was picking up on things. It was the, it was the summer that the protests in Ferguson were going on. It was, that was constantly in the news. Um, Trump was on the rise. He was, he was just putting things together mm in this way that a six-year-old does and asking me about it, really wanting to know um, what what was happening in America. And I, I don't know if you knew what was happening in America in that time, but I definitely did not. Like, oh, I, I understood that these things that had been dogging me my whole life, these really uncomfortable moments that were always nipping at tiny corners of my heart in ways that it was like it would happen so fast, but I almost couldn't react to them. I understood they were happening at a, at a rapid clip to the point where I would sometimes enter a room and feel like my heart had been like nibbled out of me before I took the first breath. Like it was decimating what was happening. Right. Mm. But I didn't know how to explain that. I definitely didn't know how to explain that to a six-year-old. So that's where it started. And the reason the, the way that's the way it started sort of thematically the other thing that happened is that um, I tried to write essays about it because I'm a writer and that's right. what you do. And I had written essays before and I've written novels before. And every time I tried to write an essay, I could only, the only thing that my brain would let me do with it was imagine how many angry white supremacists were going to read it, make fun of it, go after me, but also really go after my child. Hmm. Like, make mm -hmm. fun of the like your kid would never say that also i love when people say that stuff like no child has ever said that it's like do y'all know children because they say some pretty crazy yeah. stuff. anyway <laughs> um so what happened in that moment though was i i was trying to write the essay about those questions about michael jackson and it was just making me feel more and more scared scared for me scared for him scared that all of the things that i'm used to using as a way to connect i.e words were just ways to get at us so i drew us on paper like paper dolls and then i ran to his room and i got the michael jackson albums and i wrote those conversations and put them in bubbles and stuck them on top of the albums and then i stood on my dining room table and took pictures of them and i cropped the pictures and i sent them to my friend saeed jones who was working at buzzfeed at the time and i was like would you run this is this a story is this a thing and he was like yeah oh <laughs> it's just very sweet uh -huh. um so yeah, and he put it up and that's how that happened though, is I, and I realized in that moment, you know, the part, you know, the part when something really terrible and racist is happening to you and you're trying to explain it to someone and mm -hmm. they just don't really believe you. Yes. So then you're like, you're making it, you're like so frustrated that they don't get what it is weird about it, that you're amping up what happened. And it's, you know what I mean? You're like, it was harder than what you think it is. And they're like, are you sure that wasn't just niceness being nice? And you're like, it really wasn't. The thing that was happening, which was so amazing, is the minute I drew us, and I sort of drew us in this sort of, I always say it's like I gave us TVs for eyes. It's just this kind of way where there's no specific expression. You could be saying anything. Mm -hmm. When I did that, and when I didn't put emotion on our faces, I didn't exhaust myself trying to get somebody to listen to us. And that is the thing that enabled me to do the rest of the work. Hmm. Does that make yeah, sense? So it's like- totally. Like the form came to me as a part of the function, but then, but then 
the form then dictated the function and it also enabled an entire new set of functions. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, pretty wild. It's, it's kind of wild. like a cool coming together of everything. I have a lot of questions I'm trying to formulate. I'm like thinking and talking. Um, <laughs> well, this is the easy one. Did you know you could draw? Like, were uh, you always a draw drawer? Drawer? Drawer. Um, <laughs> I was. I was always an addresser. No, um, I... Okay, I did know I could draw in the most basic way, but if you look at those early drawings, they're pretty weird. We look like two sort of totem pole animals. Like, I just couldn't get real expressions, all very sharp lines. Um, it took me a while to figure that part out. I sold the book based on that, and then I was like, then I realized, I was like, oh, you really got to learn how to draw to do this. So then... <laughs> Then I just started figuring out that part. Um, and it was, you know, it was hard. It was, you know, getting the proportion of a face is right. I'm still terrible at it. If I haven't done it for a while and I try it, it's not, it's not like, oh, I completely get this now. It's like every time um, it takes me a minute and noses are really hard. I just have a really hard time. I eventually realized that like, for me, a nose is sort of a glorified ampersand and that's just going to be fine. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That's a great way of thinking of a nose. I just, I think what's interesting about what you were saying before, my thoughts are coming to me about the form and the function and everything coming together is that good talk feels so perfectly right about that moment in time. When I think of like, when I was, I read the book a few weeks ago. So, you know, it came out in 2019, yeah, yeah, 2019, yeah. you know, I am now in a post Trump as president world. I will not say a post-Trump world because yeah. he's clearly navigate or like pulling the strings on everything. But the book just captured what that time felt like, that that nervousness and that fear. And and I don't know that I could have read that book just without the pictures, without the art, without your son. Like I don't know if I could have read a book of essays that was that only because it's almost too difficult yeah. to take all of that in, which is sort of what you're saying. Like when someone doesn't like someone starts gaslighting you and you try to push back harder and the way that you all look in the book and the humor, Oh my God, there's so much humor in it. And you really captured what it felt like in those moments, because at least I don't know about your circle of people, but my circle of people, like we were, you know, scared and all of these things and activists and all this stuff, but we were also cracking a lot of jokes, talking a lot of shit, like, and this book has that too. And I think even more, we were talking more shit and cracking more jokes then than we, I probably have since just because of what was going on. And this book really captured that feeling and, and, and it's different. Like, Everyone can't do what you did, you know? Like, not that everyone can write a great essay, but, like, a lot of people can write a really fucking good essay. I don't know very many people who can take a current moment and a feeling and incorporate children and parenting and then also your whole memoir, your whole, you know, growing up and your family and all of that. And it just, like, I don't know, but the form and the function and then this story and this artistry, like... I don't know, Mira, like you might be a hero of the arts. <laughs> like, I don't even like, I don't even know what you did. I have to read it again and again and again. But like, do you feel that way about the book? Like, do you feel confused about how you feel about it? Or, or does it feel clear to you exactly? Like, 
Yeah, no, it feels very clear to me. But also, so this is the thing that, so I talk about this a lot with my students because I do think, like, if I would have said in the beginning, oh my God, in order to do this book, I'm going to have to learn how to draw. I'm going to have to learn five kinds of software. I'm going to have to buy something called a Wacom or a Wacom or a Wacom <laughs> tablet. Still haven't figured that out. I'm going to have to learn how to draw without my wrist hitting a screen because I have never learned to do that. And, and then I'm also going to have to figure out how to write essentially like 40 small plays. Mm-hmm. Cause that's what it was in the book. It's all these conversations. So they're tiny. They're like little vignettes, little plays. And if I would have thought you're going to have to figure all that out, I would have passed out. But I really do think that there's so much to be said for just walking forward and figuring out what you need to figure out in the moment. Mm. Like I just felt like I knew the thing that I needed to say. I had no idea how I was going to say it, but I did know that not saying it was killing me. Mm. I mean, it was killing all of us. Right. And it's not that saying it doesn't kill us. Right. But I understood for sure in a way that I maybe hadn't before that like, oh, y'all are wrecking my life. Mm. You're taking away my son's life. You're taking away this. You, you are debasing us. You will debase us. Right. And I think that's what I knew. So the book is set. Like I was writing it 2015, 2016. I cut it off. I think I finished it in 2018, but I cut it off right before the election in the, in the final version of it. Um, because that was the narrative arc that I wanted to cover, but I understood by that point what we were in. Right. Mm. I understood by that point how ugly it had gotten. And I understood this thing, which I think all of us know, but it's so hard to know in the moment, which is, I was fucking right. You know, like all those things that I was scared of happening, all those things that everyone was like, you're overreacting. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Me, the optimist, but definitely was like, it's all sliding downhill. My friends, it is all sliding downhill. The way that it was going to rip up my marriage, the way it was going to rip up what was happening with my in-laws, the way it was going to decimate my place in that family. I knew it. Mm -hmm. And I just knew I needed to write a testimony to it because I I wasn't sure who I was going to be afterward. How, how does writing the book affect that stuff for you? You don't have to get too personal, of course, but just like knowing it and maybe saying it to your closest friends is different than writing it and, and, you know, making the New York times most notable books of the year list. Yeah. So what is that? What does that do? Okay. I will say I was surprised by how, how big the book got. Um, <laughs> like, I was basically like, I'm drawing a book of conversations. Who will read it? Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> um, that's a thing to do with your life. Anyway. Um, and when I would try to explain it to people, it's like, well, I draw like paper dolls and then I draw conversations. They're like, that's very interesting. Is your agent losing her mind? Um, <laughs> so I was a little bit surprised by how many people reacted to it, but also I really, um, I think that is to that point when you're writing these things and it's about family and, and it's sort of like, well, what are you exposing your family to? I absolutely struggled with that. I struggled with that because um, my in-laws uh, in the course of the book, it becomes very obvious. They, they became very avid Trump supporters, like stand on a corner with street Trump signs, Trump supporters. 
and I've been married at that point for 15 years. Hmm. And um, so I'm not a new person to this family. I've been in hospital rooms with them. I've been in waiting rooms with them. I've been in funerals. I've been in, you know, I've been in weddings. They have come to the hospital when I was scared for my son. They like drove across town faster than I thought humanly possible to get to the emergency room with us. We're family. Right. And I was still losing them to this. I lost them to this, actually. Um, and that's not to say we're, we're not in contact. We are. My father-in-law, unfortunately, died at the end of 2019. Um, but we're still in, you know, I'm still very much in contact with my mother-in-law. But it, but it broke something that was painful. And I know, I'm sure, no one has talked to me about it, but I'm sure the white family probably feels very betrayed by what I did. Mm. Um, they probably think of it as this was our problem. You know, this was a private thing. And, and the minute you did that, um, you exposed, you know, you exposed us mm -hmm. in this way that was unkind. What I hope is that in reading the book, you never doubt how much, I love my family because that to me was the hardest part. It's not that they're monsters. They're not monsters. Right. They're people that I love and they're people that really disappointed me, right. but that's not, there's no part of them that I think is dismissible. I'm just so sad that that's, I'm just so sad that that's where that it ended up. Yeah, man. So I'm married to a white guy also. And um, Tell me about that. Tell and me about his, that. And his parents are not Trump supporters, um, but we've we've I've I've tussled with his father over a lot of things because you know being a Trump supporter is a very obvious personification of a lot of the stuff that many white people of all ages, but especially of a certain age believe and feel about things and not just about race, but about women and about sexuality and about all sorts of things. And I think it's, I mean, I think one of the things about being in an interracial, interracial relationship with a white person is in-laws, you know, like, yes. I mean, my mother is white and she and I tussle about a lot of things too, you know, like it, I think that people don't understand the thing about like in-laws or, or family and racism and things is like you can have fucked up views or do things that are harmful to the people that you love and still love them. And you can be someone who has had things, terrible things said or done to them or, you know, things that have threatened their existence, right? Or their children's existence and still have love for those people. And I think oh, yeah. it's really hard to explain. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's really hard to explain is like, yes. I don't, I don't particularly care for this person. However, I still love this person because they're part of my family. And that's not yeah. my mom. I don't want my mom to hear this and think I'm saying, I don't love you. I love you very much. Mother, please right. don't. She right. gets, sometimes course. I say these things and then she's like, you know, you really made me sound bad. And I'm like, mom, ah, that's Listen, not the point. Tracy's mom, the <laughs> only person we're throwing under the bus here is Tracy's brother for the optimist. <laughs> 
Like, yes. yeah, you're great. You're My great. black brother is in trouble. The white people are all <laughs> off the hook. It is fine. White people, you've done awesome. Everything is totally yeah. normal right now. Black guy, you <laughs> fucked it up again. Jesus. Um, but I do, I think that's other, the other part of the book that I really like related to. And also just the fear of having two small brown boys and being oh. like, holy shit, I'm in yeah. for it. Yes. I mean, the other, because the other thing is, right, the other thing that's really rough is, like, on Twitter, people will have the perfect tiny argument for why they are smarter humans than you are and would never love somebody so stupid and why their dignity matters more. And, and I feel like part of the reason I wrote the book was actually into that space of, I get it that you all have the right answers. I don't know how to make sense of my heart. My heart does not tell me those same things. I wish my heart did. I wish my heart would turn off around right. people the minute they let me down. Wouldn't that be lovely? But my heart is a dumb asshole. <laughs> and my heart is just like, okay, that part really sucks. That part really hurts. Uh, I'm just going to sit over here and have a breather. And then when I see them in the next minute, hugging my grandson and telling them they're proud of him, I'm like, oh, but that's actually okay. And it's confusing, right? Yeah. Because, and that's what, you know, that is where the book goes is sort of like, what do you do with a love that can be so sustaining and so poisonous? Right. What do you do with your humanity in that moment? Right. Right. Yeah. And like, I don't know if this is the same for you, but also for me watching Mr. Stacks deal with the realization of what's happening, right? Like these are his parents, right? That's different. Like as much as I, you know, love my, 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 my other family, my husband's family, those aren't the people that raised me. Like I, I don't have to answer for them in any way. Yeah. It's a different yeah. thing when that's your, those are your people. Like you brought them, <laughs> you know? Oh, yes, no, absolutely. And it's, I think that for me also was a really hard, it was a hard learning curve in a way. It was hard to, um, I'm sure early on in our marriage, I bent over backwards to say, baby, that's them. That's not you. That's them. That's not you. Right. And so much of our work as a couple has had to be, no, you didn't come out of nowhere. Right. You are not unrelated to this. These things didn't skip you. Right. Like we, we still have to talk about all this because we can't have you doing to our brown son what your parents did to me. Right. And you would never want to. Right. But we can't pretend any longer that that's just going to happen if we love each other hard enough. Right. Right. That's just not how it works. It just isn't about that. It's just not about love. Which, by the way, also, right? Like, that's the biggest, that's like, that's the, that's the white people go to. I'm not racist because I love you. And it's like, actually, you can do both. You can do both. You can do it's both. It's so easy to do both. That's a it's thing. It's so easy to do both. And it will, like, fuck me up for life, for right. sure. But, and that, and it has fucked me up for life. Right. Like, you can do both. And, and so we just got to, like, hold on to that together. Yeah, and and find a way to kind of keep showing up for the hard parts of the conversation, of which there are so many. I mean, the you know, I always you know when we're we have like things every once in a while, I'll I'll you know rag on my husband for not putting something away, and he's like, oh, maybe you should have married a neat person. He's a very neat person, by the way. He's a neat person in the family. Okay. Maybe you should have married someone that folds the towels. I don't know. He'll just make up something. But then sometimes I will think silently to myself when we are in these things like 
maybe you should have married a white woman. Maybe I should have married a brown person. Maybe, 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 maybe. Because there's so much to this. It is so hard sometimes to be an interracial couple. And also because America has such fantasies about interracial couples. Right. And they're really, they're, they're two really different ones, right? One is that we're going to save the whole universe with our beige babies mm-hmm. and our love for each other and our just the way that we just get each other. We transcend that. And then the other one is that one or the other of us must not feel good about themselves to settle mm. for somebody outside their race. Right. And so, and, and the, and the truth that is the really hard thing to grapple with is that you can be in an inter, a loving interracial relationship and the racism will still show up and it will still make itself known. Yeah. And you still have to deal with it. Yeah. <sighs> and on and, that period, and then you have I'm, children and then it's like yeah. oh my god this is even worse why do we do this <laughs> i know although i'm okay all right so my son now is 12 okay. and i'm really digging this age like i love i feel like i'm like i love i love the 12 year old boy kind of there's this 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 total like out in the world trying to figure it all out tiny man but not quite how does this work yeah and he's picking up on all the racial undertones he's like hearing all this stuff like it used to be just me sometimes in these rooms with all the white relatives hearing things and being and kind of having these moments in my head where i was like eh, that one was a little weird oh that's weird that one makes me feel funny and every once in a while just looking up at me like no nah, don't say that don't no yeah. no now I have this other set of eyes that's always mm. looking at me and being like, did you hear that one? Did you hear that one? Oh, we're going to talk about that one later. We've walked out of doors before. We've been like, all right, first of all, let's just get to pre-dinner. Let's talk yeah. about what's happening there. And I'm like, oh, it's, I mean, it's wild. And it's also, if I'm going to be honest, it's also comforting to not be alone in those rooms. And it's also terrifying to know the weight of, of what that discussion means. Right, right. Just to be nice to my brother. That's the nice thing about having a brother is that we got to do that. Our whole, we still do that. We're very close. Mm-hmm. But, and I have twins. And I'm hopeful that they will also be able to enjoy the humor of the nightmare of racism. Oh, yeah. I mean, like my brother, too. Yeah. I have, my brother is um, definitely a huge um, solace point for me. He's also really funny. Yeah, Which mine is, too, mine too. When he's right? not wrong. So like, when mine's not yeah. wrong, Brady. Uh. <laughs> when, he's not, when he's not being falsely optimistic. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I really, also, I really do appreciate that, right? I really do appreciate that, the kind of solidarity and the parts where, like, sometimes one or the other of us will have a blind spot, usually him, frankly. I think I feel things more acutely because I'm the darker one um, mm. and I'm the girl. And I and I feel like, I I think I just have nerve endings Either either I have nerve endings longer than my body, or I'm just smarter than him. But I usually see things coming faster, and um, and we we're not always totally in sync. But when we are, it's so good to be in that foxhole with somebody. Yeah, like somebody who's got all the same things at stake. You know, I, I everything you're saying, I totally relate. I'm like, I'm a little sister. I'm smarter than my brother. I'm the girl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we're gonna come right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished, 
and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, so something that we do that I did not prep you for is a little book recommendation corner. We call it Ask the Stacks. Someone has written in looking for a book recommendation and you and I have to give them some. Um, You only have to give them one. I'm going to give them three, but you only have to do one. If you want to do more, you can. That's a you thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And people at home, if you want to have a recommendation or want to request a book recommendation, email askthestacks at thestackspodcast.com. And this one comes from Mariah and they say, I'm looking for a recommendation for the ultimate slump busting book. Something grabby, but not frilly or filled with cheap tricks. Fiction or nonfiction works for me. Okay, I'll go first. So my first one is one of my all-time favorite books. I don't know what frilly or filled with cheap tricks is because I don't think that's stuff that I read necessarily. But if it is, sorry, it's a good book. Uh, My first one is nonfiction. It's Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Mm -hmm. It's an incredible book. When you pick it up, you're going to be obsessed with him instantly. He's a phenomenal writer. It's about the criminal justice system, but mostly about people who are 
um, imprisoned for life without the possibility of parole or people who have been sentenced to death. And it has like a narrative structure that's about one particular case. And then it also talks about his advocacy at the Equal Justice Initiative. It's only one of my most favorite books. It only made me want to be a lawyer for like six months, which honestly, I've never wanted to be a lawyer before. So that's a win. Um, My next book is YA. This one might be Cheap Tricks. I don't know, but it's so good. Um, It's Monday's Not Coming by Tiffany D. Jackson. It's about these teenage um, girls who are best friends. One of them is named Monday and she doesn't show up for school and it's about her friend trying to figure out where she is and what's going on um so it's sort of thrill i mean it is it's thrillery it's very thrillery and the construct is sort of all over the place so it's kind of hard to figure out where you are so you want to keep reading Mm-hmm. And then my last one, which is a book that I'm obsessed with that just came out, but it's so not me and I love it, is Seven Days in June by Tia Williams. It's a oh romance. My- Did you read it? I was just interviewing her agent yesterday. Okay. It's really good. It's two Black writers who had a connection in their past who are reunited and it's like the love story part is actually probably the least my least favorite part. I mean, the love story is good. Like the sex scenes are silly and dumb. I don't care. But it's also she's a single mom and she suffers from migraines. So there's like this whole disability conversation that's happening. But it's not like this is a book about disability. Like it's not that at all. It's just I don't know. It's really well done. The character development is the best I've ever read in anything romantic at all. Like they're real humans. You're rooting for them. It's just so good. And I know two people who have been in book slumps who have read the book in the last few weeks and been like, my slump is over. So those are my three. All right. Um, I've got two. I've got one fiction and one nonfiction. Okay. Um, For fiction, I'm going to go with Tori Peters' Detransition Baby. Okay. Um, Did you read that? I didn't read it, but I know it. Okay. I really loved that book. It's so smart and it's a little bit, um, it's not frilly. It is a little bit like a trans comedy of manners. And it's amazing because of all of the kind of brilliant, funny, perfect, perfectly pitched um, sort of gender exploration it does. But the whole time you don't, that's not what you're paying attention to. You're just like, this is the best story. Tell me more. What else is happening? Oh, what is that person thinking? I can't believe that person said that. You're just in it. You're just in it as your heart is like quickly taking notes on everything and reevaluating everything that has ever happened to your body. It's an amazing thing. Okay. The other one that I'm going to recommend is um, this beautiful book that I just read by Kayla Sabri. It's called Field Study. Okay. And it is a book of poetry in the vein of um, citizen, but meaning it's like sharp, sharp observations. It reminds me a tiny bit of um, Jenny Ophel's work. Um, It's just, it's these very, it's basically a, a woman sort of interrogating what it means to be a black woman who sometimes loves white men what it means to be in her body and observing things happening around her. And all of these beautiful historic notes weave in and out. Famous writers drop in with their words and then she unpacks them very quickly. It's Mm. beautiful. It's informative. And when you read it, you feel sort of like at the very, um, you feel like, you know, the edges of your brain when you're like, my brain is growing right now. It's growing. It's happening right now. Um, That was my experience of it. And it it was completely, I think I read it in a day. Oh my gosh. Okay. 
Mariah, if you read any of these, let us know what you thought. Um, I'm going to get field study ASAP because that sounds so good. Um, oh, it is so good. I can't wait. I mean, I'll I can't send wait. you a copy. Yeah, it's okay. amazing. I'm excited. Okay. Now, Mira, we're going to talk about all your book tastes. We're going to start where we always start, which is two books you love and one book you hate. Okay. I often talk about God of Small Things because I think that was the first time that I read a book where I saw my actual people in a book. Mm. Um, and I am Syrian Christian Indian, and that was a book about about the Syrian Christian community in India, but also about these families where there's such a dark, dark secret that no one can ever know about, and it just and it just rots the family from the inside out, and it felt very haunting and very familiar. And Arundhati Roy is a bold, brilliant genius, as evidenced by not just just that book, but every book that she's done after, including her essays, which are amazing. Okay. So sorry, that was like 17 things. That's great. That's great. And another book, another book that I love. Oh, let's go with, let's do a, let's do a graphic. Um, because there's a book coming out right now that I think is just so moving. It's called Seek You by Kristen Radke. It's the one like on on top of a building. Like it's like a building uh, outside. Okay. I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's astonishing. It's, um, you know, she started writing, it's about loneliness. She started it long before the pandemic and somehow reading it right now makes sense of so much of what we've been through. And it just, it talks about skin hunger, about how we need to be touched, but it's these beautiful illustrations. She's a beautiful illustrator and her way of pacing the information and also just drawing that back in sort of tighter and tighter circles around humanity it's just really great. I mean, mm. it's just like this book that you're like, oh, this is going to help me understand what just happened to my entire personhood. Right now, you're handing it to me. And the fact that it's coming through in drawings, because I do think that one of the one of the best things about illustrations is that they register on a plane that your emotions can't always find words for, right? So mm-hmm. you're allowed to live in the borders of a drawing in a different way. Your consciousness is allowed to meet the lines and the frames in a different way. You're allowed to seep into those spaces and become part of them in a different way. And so that's, that was very much my experience of reading that book. Mm. Now a book I don't like, Oh, this is, I should, um, I should have come prepared. <laughs> it was a book that I didn't like. I mean, I don't, I, I'm like, I don't want to say that one, but of course I do. Um, Definitely say the one that you don't think you want to say. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, obviously. I'm just trying to think of like ones that, um, Give me one second just to think about like a real reason that I didn't like a book besides I was just in a bad mood when I read it because that's usually what it is. Yeah. Can I talk about like books that I, I cracked a million times and did not? Sure. And did you not? can interpret the question any way that you want. Okay. So this is just going to mark me for a dummy, but um, I have tried to read Ulysses more times than I can count. <laughs> And I try it constantly because I, because so many people that I love and adore, love and adore that book. And it is a closed door of a book. I think I've even gotten halfway through once. And I was like, I give up. I give up. I do not know. I do not know what this man is trying to tell me. I do not know what I'm supposed to be getting out of this. At this point, I am plodding through the pages. And I do feel that saying this is akin to saying like, I don't like opera or jazz or something else that people are like, if you have any huge, like any sort of like friction and wonder and joy in you, if there's any sort of sexiness to you at all, you will like this. And I just feel like, nah, no, I just, I don't, I do not understand that book. 
I super I don't to. subscribe to that thinking. I, I, there are plenty of things that are classics that are just not, I'm, is a no for me. Like there's so, you know, I, I just think just like when books come out now, there's so many books now that I'm like, no, this is not for me. That's the same for old books too. Like you don't get to be better than me because you like Ulysses and I don't like, no, thank you. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's funny because I feel like those books for me are so much of a, um, it's almost like they're used as a kind of compass for understanding the Western world. And so when I can't even hold the compass, I'm like, well, this is just a lost <laughs> cause. I do well, not I mean, the compass didn't imagine you when Never. they were writing it, you know? So it's like, oh, it makes sense that I, we did Anna Karenina on the show. And, oh. and like, I, I was like, you know, some of it's good, but like, I, it's also like, no, like this isn't connecting with me probably because Tolstoy was never like, I imagine a, bl a mixed black and white Jewish girl, like mm -hmm. woman, like mm -hmm. I, I don't relate to it because you didn't relate to me. Like it's not rocket science, you know, like there's a reason that your work connects with people who've never felt connected to before because you were writing for people who were never written for, who were yes. never written to before. So yeah. Yeah, and that's true. And that has, that I have to say, that was the most surprising thing about writing that book was how many people that were not Indians that uh, grew up in New Mexico and had white husbands that were like, this is definitely like my, I'm Chinese and my husband and I are going through that, you know, just like the right. amount of us that are mixed and, and kind of navigating the boundaries of, of being mixed. Um, it is really incredible. And then when you read literature that never imagined any of us, never imagined any of us as though, as though, by the way, mixed people are a new thing. Right. Right. Give me as a though, break. Like, well, that just, <laughs> honestly, that just happened with like, you know, the lovings in the fifties or whatever. With Obama. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. No. I no, it's a no for you. Fine. You don't have to like it. I've never read it and I probably never will. Let's be honest. Okay. All right. Uh, what are you reading now? Okay. There's a new book that's coming out by Madhuri Ghosh and I'm going to have to tell you the title, but I'm reading it to blurb it. She's a wonderful writer. Um, and she, she writes kind of beautiful essays that are very much about her experience, um, as an Indian American woman. And they're, and she has a really lovely way of connecting thoughts that seem like they are not necessarily going to go together. But I think partly because she has a real, like a science background and she has such a wonder about so many things, mm -hmm. she can pull a lot of things together. Um, so that's one thing that I'm reading. And then also um, there's another, I'm sorry, everything I read is to blurb, um, yeah, by the way. That's okay. So I'm reading Kyle Lucia Wu's Win Me Something, which is also coming out. Um, she is a wonderful writer. I think the book is out next year. And she's a very, you know, she's just a, she's got a very sort of deft way of describing things. You understand what she's saying um, immediately and she's good with story. So it's just sort of clicking along. So those are the two things I'm reading. When you're approached to blurb something, what is that like do do you read the whole book and then decide I want to blurb it or not or do you go in knowing the person and being like sure I'll read your book to blurb it so I'm not I will say that I'm exhausted um <laughs> and must be and must do this um differently in the future so really what happens is I think I get asked for anywhere from in like a really in a really rough moment, it'll be like five to seven blurbs a week oh. is a lot. 
it's because there aren't that many of us out here. Um, and I think it's, I think it's just people, you know, are, they just want somebody to vouch for them. And I, and I hear that what that means though, is that, um, if I were to blurb, you know, and, and this is true of any author, if I were to blurb all the books that came my way, I would never write again. Mm. <laughs> and I've had to come up with, I've had to come up with some rules for myself around it. And I've also had to just flat out say no to books that I was sure I was like, that's probably going to be a great book. Mm. That's probably a really beautiful book. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah. And also I never tell people not to ask because it is so hard to ask for a blurb. Right. You know, it's so humiliating. It is a part of the industry, in case you haven't heard this from every writer, that is a despicable part of the industry that we all hate. I actually haven't heard. No one talks about blurbs really with me. I've never oh. asked, though. I've never asked about blurbs. I think oh. the only, I've only asked Damon Young about it. That's the only person. Let me tell you then. <laughs> yeah, um, go ahead. The process of blurbing and the fact that the industry requires it, it's free labor on the part of writers who were never paid enough in the first place. And it is... It is something that it's, you know, it is very much, it's a, it's a marketing, right? right? It's a marketing tool. And, and the fact that so many of us are asked and you, and you kind of, you have to turn things over. And a lot of times you'll get a marketing team that's like, can we actually change that to this? And they want to write it in a totally different way. <laughs> and you have to say like, no, cause that's not what I meant. Right. Um, I didn't mean that a lot of times. I mean, there, there are a number of times where I've blurbed something and the marketing team has rewritten it to be low-key racist. And I'm like, that's not a thing that I would ever say. You know, I'm never going to say like, it's so wonderful to learn about India this way. That is right. not a thing that's ever going to come out of my mouth. Oh no. Um, people. Anyway. So I, about blurbs, I both understand that they are necessary and I really wish they weren't because I I understand it's like you think that you it's like oh my friend it's almost like oh my friend recommends this book but if you know that the toll that it takes both on the people who are asking it's excruciating for them to ask and then the people who are burdened with because I do read the books and that means that you're signing over anywhere from you know four to eight to 15 hours of right. free work right you know and and it's not that you don't want to support people but after a while that free work is intense that's a lot of free work yeah that's a bad system. Yes, There's a lot of money system. in these marketing budgets that are not going to people who are doing the work. Let me just put it that way. Because exactly. That's it's not the just the blurbs. I do <laughs> feel like they should. I mean, I know. And then, then it would be like, well, then if we pay for the blurb, then it's not, you know, then it's like we bought the blurb and it's like people, <laughs> you yeah. know, like you, all you're doing is acknowledging that this is a system that you have asked for free labor and you're saying I'm rewarding your free labor. Right. Um, not that that would necessarily change anybody's mind who's already exhausted by blurbing. Okay. And then the other book that I've been reading is um, Madhuri Ghosh's Kabar, An Immigrant Jer Journey. And it's... That's the first one you were talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yep. We'll link to everything in the show notes too. So people who are like, what was the title? It'll be there. It'll have a link so you can pre-order or at least find that person's website or whatever. What's the last really good book that someone recommended to you? Ooh. Well, actually, it was Detransition Baby, and it was Caitlin Greenidge. Oh, who, who makes started... an appearance in your book. Oh, I love Caitlin. Um, <laughs> Caitlin is, I mean, Caitlin is just uh, an astonishing person on so many levels. But my one of my favorite things about being her friend is she will often um, take photographs of 
books and send them to me, like so take photographs of paragraphs oh. and just be like, read this, read this. And then <laughs> I'm reading it. Um, and she has, you know, she has, a, I think she has a sub stack now, but she's an avid reader. And the way that she parses things is always through the lens of history. So when you're reading something like The Transition Baby, which I told you is this kind of comedy of manners and, and sort of a beautiful intersection of, of gender and what that means, then you've got Caitlin in the background going, and uh, if we're talking about periods, like people thought that women were making up their periods at one point because they were so irregular. You know, she's just there with right. kind of facts about how things work to tell you. That's a good friend. Yeah. So small world, her sister and my sister-in-law teach together at Tufts in the, uh-huh. yeah. And I discovered that on another episode of the podcast when one of my guests said that they had reached out to a historian, uh, Carrie Greenidge. And I asked and at Tufts and I asked my sister-in-law, I was like, do you know this person? She's like, yeah, that's, we're co-teaching a class next semester Amazing. together. And she was like, that's Caitlin Greenidge's. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. It's like, a, do you know this? It's like a, it's, it's three sisters and they're all freakishly brilliant. Yeah. I've heard all, now I know all about them. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just like one of those things where I'm like, what's it like to be born into a family of that much talent? Because that that would be terrifying for me. It would be a lot of pressure. This is a subtle dig at my brother again. And anyway. mine too. And mine too. <laughs> and this, this, my sister-in-law is my brother's wife, who I like very much. So sorry, Brady, you're out again. Uh, he's going to listen to this and be like, you've also never had me on the podcast, but I've had Sarah, my sister-in-law, I've had her on. I've had like everyone else on but him. I just, I don't know. He's, he's your brother. It's also brother. sort of like now become a running ga- gag in the family that like everyone else has been on. So one day, Brady, when you're big oh, and smart. Poor um, Brady. Poor, oh, poor Brady. Tough life. Um, do you have a favorite bookstore? You know, the bookstore that is closest to me that I love, love, love is Books Are Magic. It's right oh. there. I was there when it opened up. They have a space for a kid to like sit in basically what is like an underground cave hexagon. I mean, it's just like, it's just a really lovely store. And I love that. And then my other very favorite book in, in bookstore in Brooklyn is Cafe Con Libros. And mm. it's just that I don't know that I've ever felt that like punch of joy to the heart as when I walked into that space. I just wanted to hug everybody. And then I felt <laughs> super creepy. And I mean, you know, I was like, I basically was like, hi. And then, and I was, I had my mask on and I was sort of smiling like an idiot. And then I said, my book's in your window. Can I sign it? I love this bookstore. And it was just like, <laughs> it was weird. It was like, I just turned into a weirdo. And I was like, I love the bookstore. Thank you. Here's my book. Bye. Like it was horrible. <laughs> I love this for you and for I them. Love. It was terrible. Okay. We'll do a quick little like rapid round. I'm just going to ask you, you just tell me the title more or less. Um, what's the last book that made you laugh? I was rereading Linda Berry's The Greatest Comics of Marlis, and I was laughing so hard I thought I was going to pee the plane. <laughs> What's the last book that made you cry? I reread Beloved this summer, mm. and I cried just as much as I did the first time. Mm. Probably more. Whew. Okay. What's the last book where you felt like you learned a lot? I was reading this book about... Um, about it's it's like a terrible it's called like a novelty book but it's about like all the things you don't know about space mm. like space is beige like things like that or like <laughs> you know it would take you 20 hours to drive to the moon I mean it's just a bunch of like weird stuff but it was really it was really fun and, and it was like a kid's book and I realized as I was reading it I was like I don't know anything and I'm learning <laughs> a lot from this kid's book 
I love that. Okay. What's the, what's a book that you're embarrassed that you've never read? Besides Ulysses. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> I, I also feel, um, Great Expectations mm. was one of those books that I just, I, I saw the movie. So did I have to read the book? Ooh, oh, wow. <laughs> People right now are just losing their minds. They're like, who is this person? Get her off the show. I'm a big fan of if I've seen them. Someone, this happened with me with Little Women. Some woman was like, you've never read Little Women. And I was like, no. She's like, well, you should see the movies. I was like, well, bitch, I've seen all the movies. Like, <laughs> I don't need to read the book. I know Beth dies. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> okay. Do you have a book that is your problematic favorite? I have a book. I will tell you that the truth is I learned an unfortunate amount about plotting and pacing from the entire Sweet Valley High series. Okay. Like I read those at a time when I really wanted to be a writer. And okay. so I studied those books perhaps a little bit too hard. <laughs> and they are extremely problematic. Like there's nothing good about those. I mean, that's not true. There are some things, but it's basically about these kind of, you know, these, these white twins that have a lot of not that big deal problems. And occasionally there's like an Asian thrown in for right. <laughs> to prove that they're expanded their, their minds. Um, there was nowhere, you know, when we talk about being nowhere in a book, there was no me in that book. And I desperately wanted there to be a me somewhere in that book. So it's problematic because I never stopped reading them. I read them voraciously while also knowing that I was never going to see myself in them. Hmm. Okay. What's the book you would assign to high school students? I mean, I think it's got to be Kiese Lemons Heavy. Mm. Yes. So good. Okay. Last one. I stole this from the New York Times. If you could require the current president of the United States to read one book, what would it be? Oh, that is such a good question. And there's so much in there, though. <gasps> what are well, we going to do? It used to, when I started the podcast, it was a different president. And you're only like the third or fourth, fourth person to do the new president. So it's definitely been a shift. I mean, am I allowed to have him read the same book that the high school students have? Because I really do yeah. think... I really, I do think that knowing that an American president has read heavy would make me feel sizably different about being a citizen in this country. I'm with that a thousand percent. I mean, it is after all heavy an American memoir. So an American president should read it. Yeah. And I, I mean, we know this with Kiese, we know this with Kiese, but I just feel like there's, he writes so deeply into vulnerability and so deeply into parsing through what honesty is. And especially in a time when we are constantly told that our stories have to be noble to be worthy, there's a way in which he's just so fearless. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I feel like he just reclaims so much ground for all of us with every sentence. There's a podcast episode with you and Kiese and one more person. Saeed. Saeed Saeed, Saeed, that's what I thought. And it's so good. And I listened to it, I think, before, definitely before I'd read your book, but before I think I'd really, like, connected with you at all online. And it made me love you from the start. But also just the three of you talking about vulnerability and talking about all of that was really good. And then there's some real laugh out loud moments also. So that, I'm so delighted that you say that because that was my idea to interview them for that podcast. And I really wanted to talk to them about what it was like having a memoir out in this moment where America has decided it's very hungry for the memoirs of people of color. And then you're out in the world and you're touring with this thing and you become a product of your own past mm -hmm. yeah, for modern consumption. Right. Yeah. And it's really, it's really a self-divorcing moment. Um, it was really 
hard for me. Um, the hardest part about Good Talk was how many times I would be doing a reading and there would be some very pained looking person in the audience, usually a young person who would come back and tell me person of color, like one of their parents was white and they couldn't speak to them anymore. Or I was adopted by white parents that think they did a good thing by adopting someone like me and just the, the pain mm. of that. And also being so ill-equipped to do anything, you know, I mean, I'm a mom, so, and I'm also a hugger, so I would just find <laughs> myself hugging people, but it never felt like, it never felt like the right move. Yeah. And I don't even know what the right move would be. I don't even know, but it, but it just left this sort of ring of um, emptiness around me every time. Yeah. Um, all right, everybody, that is it with Mira for today. She will be back at the end of the month to discuss The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie, which is our first ever graphic novel. We've got an expert to help us make our way through this. Um, Mira, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you all for listening and thank you to Mira for being my guest. I'd also like to thank Tam for making this interview possible. Our July book club pick is The Best We Could Do by T. Bowie, and we will discuss the book on Wednesday, July 28th with Mira Jacob. Please make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, And our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.